Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Jaguar, the art of performance. To learn more about the all-new Jaguar XE, visit jaguarusa.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk, now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Andy Greenwald. I have no official title at theringer.com and joining me on the other line, it's Chris Ryan! How'd I do? It's so weird. It's like, I feel like I'm wearing two left speakers. This is crazy. I want to say, devoted listeners of our podcast know that since I came to California, there's been a little bit of a power struggle between us. I think it's safe to say <laughs> there was a time you sat by the door, then you made me sit by the door, but I think nothing compares to the Machiavellian majesty of what you've just done, which is, as soon as I got here, you decamped to New York, and not just New York, you're basically living in my house right now, like it's Susan Jacobs' smart house. Like, you are in Brooklyn yeah, right I'm now. Call, I'm calling from a, a startup office in Brooklyn, New York, uh, right across the street from Borough Hall. Um, I've been having a lovely couple of days in New York City, which I'm happy to detail for you as much as you want. Yeah, no, twist the knife. That's good. That's good. Um, okay. how, many, you know, like, how many slices of pizza do you have in your hand right now? So last night I went to go see a, it was a not-so-secret good music show at the Highline Ballroom, uh, which I had, you know, I, I actually had pretty low expectations for when, when our buddy John Caramonica hit me up and was like, we, we had had dinner plans, and then our, those dinner plans quickly became, I'm going to this good music show, you want to come? I was like, well, I think my answer was actually, he said it was a secret Kanye show, and I was like, cool, is push-up playing? <laughs> and, uh... And then I was like, okay, let's go, let's go. And we got there at 10 um, with all, all the young Jonah Hills of New York City. And, uh, and we got in. And at about, I'd say like 1230, <laughs> uh, we, we started to get some rappers on the stage. And we'll, it was just a magical night, man. So we had Pusha, Designer, Migo, uh, um, Swiss Beats came out. Pusha did Mr. Me Too and had Pharrell come out. Pharrell did not remember the words to Mr. Me Too. Um, Kanye was out there, uh, did a couple of, like, couple of um, Pablo songs, but had an incredible time where he basically like, choreographed a mosh pit for Timmy Turner and was like, trying to tell people how excited they could get. And it was just a really fun night. And at one point, someone in VIP ordered 15 pies from Joe's and then at the end of the concert, during Panda, actually, they started throwing slices at the crowd, which is like, when you're a Kanye fan and you are just happy to get pizza thrown at you, that means you are truly, you, you have really hit the life of Pablo pretty hard. Listen to me. Listen to me right now, okay? In my darkest moments since moving across the country, when I'm praying to St. Pablo on my knees, I could not even imagine a fantasy that involves seeing Kanye West and having him throw slices of the best pizza in New York at my face. <laughs> like, that's a little too on the nose and kind of, I kind of think you're making it up. I'm not, man. It was really, it was pretty great. Uh, it was also just like really funny because it was, it had the, the patina of a, of a not quite um, planned upon show. So the song would start and then, people would just sort of lose interest in performing the midway through. But I think my favorite moment of the night was probably Designer and Kanye losing their minds to Hannah Montana by Migos. 
And then the, my least favorite part of the night, but also my favorite part of the night, was the absolute flat face emoji that greeted Tyga when he was announced as the newest signing of Good Music. Ugh. Yeah, I thought for a minute when you were naming names, because you came in pretty hot. You know, you, I think you said, like, you said Pusha first, you said Kanye. I thought we were going to devolve into some sort of, like, like B-grade Funkmaster Flex where you're like, Sci High, the Prince is going to be there. Mr. Hudson <laughs> is in the building. It's like how how low level good music signings do we have to get for? Well, no, so, it was like a, a really long time of Virgil Abloh DJing for, for like a really extended period of time. But you know, it was it was a lot of fun. And there was a second where I thought Jay was going to walk out, um, but that didn't happen. What do you think, think about? US Open. Of course he was. What do you think about the sort of present day Kanye as? Um, sort of like brutal survivalist, right? Because he made you guys stand around for two and a half hours in the Highline Ballroom deprived of pizza. Apparently earlier in the day, he made models pass out by having them stand out, stand outside for four or five hours during Yeezy Season 4. Yeah, the Yeezy Season 4 show. It was at like Randall's Island, I think. He's just, he's just using you guys as pawns. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, I think he's become... I mean, he always was a control freak, but it was really... It was actually quite funny to watch him... He saw that there. So now that this Pablo Tour has this thing where apparently he's performing on a platform above the crowd, yeah, and it's it's apparently like very like there's really no seating, there's no rows, it's just people in a swarm around this stage, which I think is awesome. And a lot of these songs have um, you know breakdowns and parts that people are really getting into moshing, and he's clearly like in a real mosh zone, like moshing is a thing for these guys for, like, designer especially, and they were, uh, it was just really interesting to watch Kanye try to control the pit. He was like, I need you guys at a five, I need you to make a hole, and then when this drops, I need you to mosh, and it's like, let it happen, man. Let it organically flow. I, I do want to say that um, I was, I've been slow to the designer uh, train a little bit. Like, I really like Timmy Turner, obviously, and Panda's a grower. But um, did, did you just call the did guy, you just call the number one song in the country a grower? Well, I think it's just like a song when you heard it, you were like, "This is a joke," right? And then you were like, "Well, this is somebody ripping off Future," which I guess they are. But as as it goes on and on, you're just like, "It's an infectious song." Yeah. You can't get it out of your head. I think that if he ever gets the material, like he is going to be a huge, 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 huge star. Because his live performance and his charisma and his just his vibe is pretty pretty incredible. I gotta say, it's been a minute since I was at the First Unitarian Church in Philadelphia, and I don't remember when I saw Thursday there, <laughs> Jeff like during Cross Out the Eyes, being like, "Okay, hold up, hold up," you know, I need I need these six guys here to form a perimeter. Yeah, that, right. That's, right. That that's not really how it works, but I you know, I, no, it's supposed to just like people are just supposed to camel kick and pick up change. Um, but it was, you know, it's, it's definitely at a point now where Kanye has become the, uh, sort of the commissioner, you know, like Pusha is the president, they've got this new generation of people. And the weirdest thing about it was being at the show and I know people freaked out for father stretch my hands, people freaked out for famous, but I kind of felt like people were as into or as, as, as excited to see designer and Migos as they were to see Kanye. And I almost wonder if we are now getting into like another generation of good music. People were like kids who look at Kanye as like classic rock old timer stuff. 
isn't that sort of how you feel about the transition from Grantland to the Ringer too? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Ringer is my Pablo. Just all you graybeards just seeding the stage. Yeah. Um, right. I, I really appreciate that we've that we've 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 flipped cities, we've flipped coasts, we've we've flipped lives. Last night you were at a a rap show eating pizza until dawn. I taped a live television program and was in bed at ten p.m. It was. <laughs> How did that go last night? Yeah, it was good, man. Um, it was good. You did, it, you did hacking robot. Yeah, we did hacking robot. Not yeah. watch what happens live. We didn't do watch what happens live. We didn't do after suits, which I was still pushing really hard to do. <laughs> I really, I, honestly, if I could use whatever small leverage I have with the USA Network to allow them, to allow myself to host, to get them to allow me to host an after show for a show I've never seen, I think, I think we could really, really break new ground. No, it was fun. I mean, the the yeah. the, 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 the Mr. Robot cast is are, are very, very uh, nice and very fun people. I, the only disappointment, Sam Esmail was supposed to join us. He was unable to because he is still making the television show. So, uh, you know, it ended up being a lot more of just like hanging, hanging. Doesn't Sam know that the after show should be the priority? I, you know, let me tell you something. I can show you the text message exchange where I tried to make that case. It was uh, not <laughs> greeted warmly. Um, but, you know, so it ended up being more like hanging with the homies, just having it, having a what laugh. What would you do if, uh, if you found out that what Sam was doing, he had like a synergy account and was just. I think you I think you are in his head like Christian Slater's in Rami Malek's head now. I think he is freaked out about it. Um, He's like Gene Hackman, Hoosier is just like screaming at extras now. (laughs) He just constantly has a loop of blue chips running in his Google glasses. Well, okay, I didn't get a chance, uh, I'm a big fan of yours, but I did not get a chance to see last night's after show, because I was at Kanye. Yeah, that's, listen, I, I would make the same choice 12 times out of 10. Um, I wanted to ask you, did you guys get a chance to talk at all about who wrote last night's episode or who was one of the co-writers? No, that, that is a, that is okay, a, so, that, that, that sounds like a borderline, uh, serious question. We did, we did not get yeah, that. Yeah. So with last night's episode, which is actually the penultimate episode, am I correct? So the, the finale quote unquote is going to be stretched across two weeks. Yeah. They, I mean, it's the. You know, people know the way Mr. Robot's gone this season. Like, it's very, very fluid because they shot, they block shot the whole season like a movie and then chopped it up into episodes. Now, the scripts were written as individual episodes. So, technically, what we saw last night was the penultimate episode. Um, it, it was 209. Um, but when they made the decision to split the finale into two weeks, two, two episodes across two weeks, some of the stuff that was in 209 slid into other episodes. But technically, okay. this was the penultimate episode, yes. So last night's episode was co-written by a guy named, and I, I, I hope I don't get his name wrong, but Corradonna. Corradonna, right? yeah. Yeah, and one of his jobs on the show uh, over the, the season has been to work with Sam on making sure that there was a degree of personality and, and research involved in the hacks and stuff like that, and that basically he is the... I, if I understand correctly from, from from interviews I've read, he's like the Reddit whisperer. He's the person who kind of mm-hmm. puts Easter eggs in not only the show but some of the show's viral marketing. Yes, yeah. We, we I think there, I, re- I think there's some Easter eggs in Hacking Robot last night. I mean that he he, he any time in the same way that there like on medical shows they there is a doctor or retired doctor involved in the production so that when they write the script and they're like. 
you know, they just write like medicine, 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 broken heart, medicine, medicine. That guy comes in and it's like, actually, it's called an infarction. And they just fill that in. Similarly, um, I mean, Sam knows more about hacking than than I think, you know, than I, certainly that I know about medicine. But Core, who started as Sam's... <laughs> You're the Dr. House among the two of us. You are always advocating for cold and or hot towels on people's necks. And three times out of 11, it works. Um, Cora, Cora Donna started as Sam's assistant on the show and then this year went into the writer's room and also, yeah, is the, sort of the hack coordinator of making sure everything is legitimate, make sure that all the, every time Rami's typing on the keyboard that it is somewhat accurate. Yeah, well, and so, and like we said, like with the, with the Easter eggs, I thought last night's uh, shot of when, when, when uh, Elliot is, is, is texting with Angela and is hacking and uh, is sending those, um, He's in that apartment and he's sending those facts to the to the cops to, to get the number. And the camera kind of leaves his perspective to kind of go snooping all around the apartment. Yeah. That that was almost like this weird extension of, of Easter egg fan culture coming to life within the body of the show. That's interesting. So you mean like in the sense that the camera was giving the audience what they like if this was like an immersive experience like that computer game missed. And again, I know as much about the computer game missed as I know about medicine, but that you could theoretically like move your mouse around and explore basically explore the game world. You remember uh, back in the season of Game of Thrones, the uh, the flash forward that Bran has that we we love so much. and how that became this thing that even though did, it was did, didn't we be, didn't we cover that heavily on our after show? Uh, it was one of my favorite moments on the after show. That's right. But that moment, which was so digested by the internet and, and was broken down frame by frame and everything, we I think that that shot almost was was something like that, where it was meant to be separated out from the show itself, so that people could analyze like what was happening think- in that apartment for themselves and it kind of works within the world of Mr. Robot because you, you're dealing with a quote-unquote a narrator who's got multiple personalities who's referring to a, a you when he's talking to, I guess, the audience. But we're still finding layers of, of, of who all is in the room when we're talking about Mr. Robot. So yeah. I thought it was like a really cool scene. I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's good to point that out. I, I just think in general... Um... You know, we are used to talking, and I, we, but also people who talk and write about television and for a living, or people who just watch it, you know, very carefully. We still talk about TV in our in our in the way we watch it and the way it's communicated to us, primarily in the way that we've often thought about it, which is as a writer's medium. So we assume that the script will give us the insights that we need. The images are, I mean, even as the direct TV direction has improved, it is still in a way often secondary to, in terms of communicating the message of the show because mm-hmm. the, the directors very often, you know, they, they, they come onto the show for a week or two weeks of prep and they shoot and then they're off. And so they're basically just trying to reenact someone else's vision to the best of their ability. And often the person whose vision they're trying to um, enact is not even there on set to, to help them do it. But in this case, where it is one person directing mm-hmm. every frame, he his curiosity is the show's curiosity. What he is showing us is what he wants us to see on the show, quite literally. So anytime, so, you know, and that can be in smaller moments, you know, or aesthetic choices, like, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but occasionally characters are not centered in the frame. Um, sure, yeah, but, 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 I've noticed that. Have you noticed it? I'm glad you picked up on that. But similarly, a moment you're talking about, like, that has narrative importance. That, that means something to the story just as much as... Um, you know, where it, whether Angela is going to confess or not. Um, did you feel my feeling about the episode was 
you know, in in this in the second half of the season, post prison, as we're pivoting, this was very much of a piece of what the show is, and it's a sh- version of the show that I like very much. It's sort of a, it's much it's much leaner. It's a taut, tense hour um, with some something to hold on to. In this case, we have our protagonist back, so we're grounded in the world. Um, I thought this was, you know, maybe that is a polite way of saying I thought this was a, you know, here to there episode, basically. But I'm just grateful that we are moving from here to there again. And so I, I fitted it, you know, there, there were specific moments that we can call out, but I think this is very much well, okay, a piece so of the second in half of the terms season. Of my, in terms of my visceral reaction to the episode, I actually think this is my favorite of the season. Wow. Um, I thought the last 10 minutes were awesome. Um, and I thought it was like a piece of filmmaking and it's like, like editing and music and, and the staging and just the pacing of it. I, I, I thought this is my favorite of the season. I thought the cross-cutting between the two couples towards the end um, and, and Dom's detectiving was just so cool. I thought the... Is it Matt Quayle who does the, yeah. the music? I thought the, the score at the end was fantastic. Um, I have to say, though, this is sort of like the, the funny thing now. I don't know. I don't really know what's happening on the show. Well, like, I, I don't, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just like like we've joked to each other. Just like, do you know what a femme cell is? No. Well, I, I think it's pretty important. It's like I don't really know what a femme cell is. I don't really know what. Uh, is is always happening, and I don't even know like is the is that China taking over the Congo? Is that like real? Like, yeah, are I mean, they really going to try and do he, that? Here's why I feel better about it, and and it really has changed. You know, when you have Elliot back in the mix, um, my the focus that was previously on Philip Price's um, ambition or White Rose's true goals. I, I, once again, I'm back to where we were in the first season, which is I don't really care what the masters of the universe are doing because I have someone back down on Earth to worry about. Like we have, you know what I mean? We, sure. we, we have Prometheus. He went up there and he got fire. And now he's back with us. And whatever is coming is still coming and looming. And we don't quite understand what it is. And that's OK. And I, I again, I appreciated the way we were downloaded that information about the Congo because that is let me just be clear. That is absurd. But the way that opening scene was shot and the way Michael Christopher delivered it. It's intentionally absurd. It is completely an abstract concept, and the show is sort of steering into that. Um, but I also think that it's important that the show is giving us a little bit more specificity in terms of what's happening week to week as opposed to season to season, which is Darlene and Cisco might be dead, um, and uh, Angela might be turning herself into the FBI. And, you know, it feels like... a it feels like there's one show again. And I think the biggest criticism I had of the first half of the season was that there was the, there was the Dom DePero show, which was a pretty good show. There was the Angela show, which was a shockingly good show. And there was the, um, you know, there was the, the, uh, the Elliot and Ray chess spectacular, which was fascinating and aesthetically beautiful, but not as engaging a show as those other shows. Now it's all one show. So I'm just enjoying being along for the ride. Yeah, I think it's been, it's definitely been, I think, a stretch for people to see all the different plot lines be sort of separated, and now that they're kind of like coming together, I think it gives the show a lot more cohesion. Um, one question that I had is just like a straight up, like, maybe I should just Google this harder, but when Dom goes into that apartment, and I thought that scene was really neat, like, it, it reminded me a lot, it basically made me want to watch Seven again, which is always a, an uplifting experience. Yeah. Um, 
John picks up an ID card with the name Francis Shaw, yeah. which is the name of the actress who played Shayla, right? Frankie Shaw, yeah. Yeah, but who is that character? Who's that? That's Cisco's real name. That? Gotcha. That was okay. Cisco. She's she was uh, on to Cisco. That was a yeah. That was a little winking nod to Frankie Shaw, who played Shayla last year, who was one of the best things about the show. I think I wish. Yeah. I wish she could start haunting Elliot's head because I think she, I just think she's great. There's been a lot that of that. Be There's been a lot of that on the show. Um, you know, in the in the first in the season premiere when Angela was working in PR at E Corp, um, they keep referring to I'm going to call Melissa. Melissa's going to come, and and so that and the the USA. PR person for the show is Melissa Cusack, and so Sam put her in the show. So there's a lot of that, like, friends and family plan. Um, right. But I think the, the the bigger question going into next week... Well, there's the, the big question going into next week is who survives that shootout. But I think the one thing to keep an eye on in terms of all the different balls in the air with the show is... I'm asking you this um, point blank, uh, femme to sell, peer to peer here. <laughs> Do you care if Cisco lives or dies? Nah, and I, I think mean, shout I, out to him. And I think that's a problem, but, uh, right? And it's not. Well, the, no, it, you know what I mean. It's like, and that guy has like a tough role to play. You know what I mean? Like he basically has to do it. Darling, <laughs> you gotta chill. And, uh, but it's it, I, I though I, I have to say I'm kind of curious about what's gonna happen because of the way that that was staged. Um, if you were just gonna kill Cisco, you could you could shoot that in a much more conventional way. Do you care? I, not really. I mean, I, I, I like... Well, it would be a little bit disappointing since they just started to have, like, a more normal relationship, you know? I mean, yeah, right. It was, only, yeah, a week, it, it it was only a week ago she hit him in the face with a baseball bat. Yeah, Michael Dreyer is the actor. I think he's been really good. Um, I think it's, you know, I, th- I, I think that the that character in many ways was a casualty of all the different things going on in the show, that really the nature of that relationship only emerged in the last few weeks which is actually not true. And one thing we did on, on Hacking a Robot last night is they made a, a fun little montage of like, you know, like the show's it couple, Darlene and Cisco, and you realize that they've been having these moments, maybe without baseball bats, all the way back since season one. It's just that that's not what anyone's talking about and there wasn't enough oxygen really to, to focus on it. But I, I liked, I just love the way it was staged. I love the, the just cinematically how that shootout was staged. I, I don't, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Carly Chaikin is probably still on the show. And Darlene is probably going to survive that. Um, I, we don't know about Cisco, but the fact that we kind of are willing to accept him as a casualty, it, it's it's just it's just something to keep an eye on. Like you want you want to have supporting characters that can you know, for lack of a better word, be cannon fodder. But you kind of want to you want you want to be pretty engaged when that happens. And I think that that's that's yeah. a concern for any show going forward. Well, I'm sure that we will talk more about uh, obviously Mr. Robot on next week's re-up following, uh, following the first part of the finale. Let's take a little break for our sponsors, and let's talk about your favorite show in the history of television. Okay. We know it's a little rude to interrupt, but while we have your ear, let's have a brief conversation about manners. As the British like to say, manners maketh man. Did they say that? So it's no wonder that Jaguar's first ever compact sports sedan, the Jaguar XE, and their first ever performance SUV, the Jaguar F-Pace, are well-mannered. They both put you at ease the moment you enter, remain composed in almost any situation, and know when to make themselves heard. For the full Jaguar guide to manners, please visit jaguarusa.com. Thank you, Jaguar, for the art of performance. 
Okay, guys, I think you know this. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for too long. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to. None of the older ticket sites want to change that, but SeatGeek... Guys, SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and a website that make it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. I know, for one thing, I will be searching out St. Pablo tickets soon. I know that's a little off-brand for me, but I kind of want to see the Kanye show, and SeatGeek is probably the best place out there for me to get the tickets that I want. Um, I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I might just, I might, as soon as I'm done recording this, I might even just plug in the dates and find what I need. With SeatGeek, you'll never waste time checking prices on other ticket sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. Plus, SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your very, very precious buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, listeners of The Watch get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Enter promo code WATCH. That's W-A-T-C-H in case you have some spelling issues. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download your free SeatGeek app today and enter the promo code WATCH. I will see you at the St. Pablo Tour. Okay, we are back, Chris. I know you were feeling a little nervous about uncorking something that you've kept corked for a while, but especially over a cell phone. I know you're in public. Can you do like a really intense whispered version of what we're about to talk about? Here's the thing is, I'm sitting in a glass box, and that's just of emotion, but literally like a glass box, and we work in Brooklyn, and across from me are all these delightful people, there's a dog here, somebody just made a salad, he's got some uh, some tortilla chips that I think are seasoned with lime, mm. I, they're all enjoying their day, and I just would feel terrible shattering that, you know, with my particular kind of energy, so I need everybody just to basically... Uh, use their imagination and go with me on this because I want to talk about a show mm-hmm. and uh, the show is on the net, the Netflix network, mm. which you can find on channel, channel internet mm-hmm. on your box. Mm. And the show is about the cocaine trade. Mm-hmm. And, the and sh- that show, and the show is called Grace and Frankie. It's called. Marcos. I'm sorry. What? Sorry. What was that? Oh. Sorry, I think the dog was barking, or maybe someone was crunching a tortilla chip. Can you can you I give it? I promise, I'm, I, when we do the next, the next episode, I promise I will scream. I can't scream it now, but we're talking about Narco season two. I feel like I feel like you're. Narco. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how, how, look around right now. Like, what's going on in the like the Etsy studio that you are basically squatting in? There's, a bunch of people doing actual work. <laughs> Just they don't care. That's how I feel every time we do a podcast. So it's really no different. Um, Narcos returned to Netflix uh, Last Friday. on Friday. The insane thing about this show is that um, many, many people listening have probably probably binged, and that's a very apt word for the show, um, gone on a bender and seen all 10 hours of season two. Um, Netflix is certainly enthusiastic about your response because they announced seasons three and four. Um, so I hope Boyd Holbrook... Just entirely waiting, uh, you think, on my response? I think so. Well, I, I think on, on America's response. I was doing like the, like, like, ustedes, like the, like the collective you, you know? But I hope Boyd Holbrook is getting paid in lozenges because in like soothing chamomile teas because he's going to be doing a lot more voiceover for the next few years. Um... 
you know, if you liked first the first season of the show, probably going to like the second season, right? Which is which is pretty amazing because I think it was marked with a, a bunch of tumult behind the scenes. Um, I think there were a couple showrunners came on and off the show. You know, they're managing production in Colombia. Yeah, Chris, Chris Montano was, was uh, sort of one of the original showrunners. And creators. Uh, yeah, and uh, was it Jose Padilla who did... Um, Elite Squad. Crap, what's the... Yeah, right, and he directed the, the pilot, and I think it sort of set the visual style book, and then a new group of people kind of came aboard later in the first season or in the second season, second season has different writers now. Yeah, I think the second season had, had two groups of writers, if not more. But, you know, the, sh- the show is the show. And if I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm damning with faint praise, I don't mean to. I just, I find the show kind of confounding because, and I want how should I put this? I think it's pretty bad in most conventional ways. But I want to say that with, by, with the caveat that I enjoy watching it. You know, I think yeah. that you can look at this show as either the the best case or worst case scenario for Netflix's model. Best case is oh. that it it basically is micro targeted to a very specific cinematic pleasure centers. You know, like if you like Scorsese movies, you know, if you like movies about the drug trade, or if you like honestly, if you like you know hopped up documentaries, you know, like uh, Cocaine Cowboys or basically anything. If if you like interviews with Michael Bay, you know, if you like going to Michael yeah. Bay's house and riding jet skis, you are going to find things that you like in this movie. I mean, sorry, in this I'm saying this movie on this show. Um, worst case scenario for Netflix is because it is so it's not even contemptuous of the kind of narrative um skills that I appreciate in great TV. It just ignores them completely. I mean, when you, when I watch this the show, I mean, we last season we joked a lot that this is basically Wikipedia the television show because the connective tissue of like some of the best stuff on TV generally is the connective tissue that where you get from plot to plot, right? It's not yeah. It's not all we were talking about the night of last week. It's not just what happens to Nas in the courtroom. It's that when what happens to Nas happens, Helen Weiss the the the, the DA there's a moment where she takes off her work shoes and puts on her, basically her sneakers and walks out of the courtroom. That's the connective tissue that allows people to be human and that sort of, we find the contours of the story around the story. Narcos does not give a shit about any of that. As soon as the scene is done in which characters basically basil exposition each other for three minutes, Boyd Holbrook pops on the old VO and explains exactly what it was we just saw, or we cut to real life news footage to get us from here to there. So every scene basically feels like, like dinner theater. Um, but yeah, sometimes he'll even say things like he'll repeat something that someone has just said. Mm-hmm. His voiceover, I think we described it last year, if I remember correctly, as being the human Wikipedia yeah. uh, entry. Now he has become the human record scratch, that's me, you may be wondering how I got myself <laughs> in this situation. Maybe. So that's like, he basically jumps on. Now the funny thing about this, I was actually reading... Uh, a really good GQ profile of your uh, of John Landgraf, who runs FX by Alice Gregory, and, and it was just a piece about how he does what he does, and then some, some magic behind FX and everything. And he talked a little bit in there about you know obviously he's he's one of the um, not the architects, but he is one of the great preachers about the idea that we are living in peak TV, and that, that may or may not be a great thing. And he talks also about in this piece about television being a, a, a passive activity still that it's not always something that people want to be 
overly challenged by or required sure. to pay attention, you know. Um, but one thing that's a, so I, I would actually say that Narcos is a really good example. It's the best passive TV there can be. Now, that being said, unless you are fluent in Spanish, it is difficult to be a passive viewer of Narcos because I will watch Narcos and then like have it on in a browser tab and then look at something else and then realize I have no idea what's going on because Chris. Two scenes have happened entirely in Spanish. But Chris, I think you're being a little too harsh because you do not need to be fluent in Spanish to be the star of Narcos because <laughs> the god Wagner Mora, who plays Pablo Escobar, who takes his performance to a next level. I mean, he the performance is astonishing. The performance is really, really worth watching he, the show and, for. And I, I actually... He, 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 do doesn't, he doesn't speak a word of Spanish. He doesn't speak a word of Spanish. He, he's, he's a, but even beyond he that, speaks Portuguese. even beyond that, this season, and I know you've watched... How many of you watched this season? Not, not enough. Not enough. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the season, and uh, his performance gets richer and richer, I think, as Pablo Escobar is inevitable, and as we know, it's a historical fact. Hey, becomes more and more apparent to him and everyone sort of around him who loves or hates him. And there is a real, um, you know, he's, he's talked a lot in interviews about how he needed to shed this character, not just emotionally, but like physically, because that's not the actual, like his actual preferred body weight yeah. um, that he is. And he's just like, I just needed to get this guy off of me, and I needed to not be in his headspace, but I also needed to get my body back. And that's why he was sort of relieved that the, the Pablo storyline had come to an end. Um, you know, and I, I just think that there's something about this show that every time where I'm like, I'm about to hit stop, man. Like, I, I love it for all the reasons that you outlined. I like Michael Bay movies, I like Martin Scorsese movies, I'm fascinated by the drug trade. If this film, if this, movie, if this show had been shot in any less of a rich setting, and mm-hmm. if it lacked any of the sense of place that it has, I think it would be not unwatchable, but pretty bad. If they were trying to make the valley look like any of these yes. locations, I think it would be really bad. The, the, the feeling that you get, like you could watch this as a silent film, as a, you could turn it off entirely or just put closed captioning on and you would feel like you were having an, a, an incredibly rich experience because of how deep they get in in the setting and the set dressing. And, you know, I know that it looks like a bunch of people in dad jeans and mullets, but it's like, you definitely feel like you are in 1992 South America. There, yeah, there are a couple, you're, I mean, I think that's right. I think there are a couple things that just, that, that are just so well done in the midst of some things that are questionably done, but I think it does outweigh it. Like when you're talking about setting, I completely, completely agree. Um, I've never, I've never been to Medellin in the nineties or today, but, um, you know, Lovely place, very underrated. Well, but that's the thing. So I, I have I have a friend who comes from there, and the way that she talks about the city and just the way it looks, and when it looks, you know, when you can get up in the hills and you can look down on it, I mean, it is one of the most beautiful cities in South America, if not in the world. And there's a shot in the second season premiere where just when I was starting to get a little more sour on the show, and I'm like, hey, it's still the way Boyd Holbrook is sort of like like white splaining this country, and like everyone is just servicing them. It just it just feels like cultural tourism and a little bit of exploitation then there's a shot of the valley at night and you're like oh that's a real place that's the place that where that made pablo escobar a a demon and a hero and 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 my concerns went away again for a minute similarly you know just his physical performance his presence 
like the scene at the breakfast table in the premiere or when another great act, like so many small performances by actors who are just terrific. Yeah, the guy who plays uh, Horatio Carrillo, uh, the colonel who kind yes. of takes matters into his own hands. Um, Judy Moncada, who's the kind of queen of the South character that they have in, in, in the show. It's, uh, I, I love uh, Bruno, Bruno Bashir, who's Damien Bashir's brother, who uh, is just, I think, is a really fascinating and, and always interesting to watch actor. He plays... Um, you know, the guy who's the bearded guy who's Pablo's uh, liaison with the government. Uh, yeah, Duarte, yeah. So, so, so anytime like he's there, it, it, you're suddenly drawn back in. It's a confounding show because I think, and this is more than anything else, this is actually what Netflix's goal is. It's basically, to, it's not just to, to disrupt, and I, I kind of hate that word, but it's not, but it's useful here. It's, it's not just to disrupt the television industry as we've all known it. It really is to disrupt the way we talk about it, view it, and cover it. And that's probably why Narcos is so confounding and why it's so successful, regardless of these ticky-tack things that we keep bumping up against with it. So I wanted to ask you on a broader level about Narcos' debt or um, relationship to history. And we touched on this just last week, um, about this idea that maybe shows were being put into production that possibly this, this could be a, a a copycat thing. But that the shows were being put into production because period piece shows uh, have a degree of timelessness to them that really plays well when you are building up a streaming content library. So right. um, the reason why, say, Hold and Catch Fire uh, might have like a little bit more value than if it was set today and it was set in like startup today uh, is because it's just like people can watch that in six years and not be like, well, nobody has iPhones like that anymore. This is stupid, right? Um, but I've been noticing that there's just a tremendous amount of stuff going into production or coming out soon that has that same model. And I, I was wondering if you had any idea about, you know, I saw the HBO is, is looking at Max, the Lena Dunham show about that at a women's magazine in the, I believe the 60s. There's a show. I, I think, I think they passed. Coming. I think that's, I think they passed on that, but they were, but it was Okay. Well then there's a show that Rob Reiner is working on that's set at Yale in 1969. There is, um, the director of Hell or High Water, Dave McKenzie, is working on a show for USA called Damnation, which basically sounds like Preacher, but set in the 1930s. And, you know, like, or like it, it, it kind of has, like, yeah, a guy in Iowa who's like maybe a fake preacher who's trying to, like, upset the status quo, and there, there's strike breakers and stuff like that. There's this show Outcast, I think, is coming from... Is it Outcast or what's oh, the show? Oh no, I was going to mention this. Green? Yeah, that's it's Quarry, and it debuts tomorrow in Cinemax. Quarry, and right. I'm and I was going to suggest I, I think we should check it out, and maybe people check it out, and we yeah, can talk, a, talk about it next week. And it's it's, it's uh, Logan Marshall Green and Jamie Hector from The Wire as two returning Vietnam vets you know, who get involved in crime in the early seventies in Memphis. You know, Logan is the son of my uh, my college acting professor. Of course, I do. What's his name? <laughs> Lowry. Shouts to Lowry Marshall. TA twenty three. Stand up. <laughs> the, the, the class, the class that taught me to sit down and leave the theater. As far as I'm concerned, all they taught you was pantomime pouring water down your pants. But apparently, that was just a bad dream I had. <laughs> you had a dream where I poured water down my pants? No, you remember like you used to do all those like you when you were doing those, that improv group. I thought First like, of all, the only wait. show I ever saw. Wait, wait, wait. Let's let's stop for a second here. I never did improv. <laughs> improv is improv is easy. We did sketch. Sketch. Yeah, sorry. Go you on. You were one of the true poets. Go on. The idea, basically, that you were, and you would walk in off stage left, and you'd be like the happy waiter, and then you'd pour ice water down your pants. Did that not happen? 
No, it this is this never happened. But but I think you've been out there telling that story. By the way, you should. I've told so many people this story. Why didn't you just write up that sketch and submit it to Saturday Night Live? Because you clearly, you're the guy with his finger on the pulse of performed comedy. I mean, ice down the pants. Um, no, I mean we we I, I'm sure our listeners want to deep dive into. Um, no, no, no. Let's get back to historical. Maybe this is something we can talk about more for Corey, but I thought it was interesting. I also think it's interesting that, uh, boy, I think so much stuff is interesting. I think it's worth talking about how the entire, almost all of the blood and tissue and muscle of narcos is literally, I don't even know if it's accurate, but it is told as if it is like, we can't do this to Pablo because then Spark will retaliate so we have it's all moving yeah. chess pieces along the but, line of history where and, and you know almost to the point where it's like the only human moments come in these kind of tacked on moments between Lloyd Holbrook and his wife or Pablo and his wife and, and uh, it, the, the weight of history on this show is particularly can, interesting can you imagine when the, the woman who plays uh, the actor who plays uh, uh Murphy's wife got the script for season two and she's like let me guess I'm in a house complaining about a cat and they're like better you tell him he cares too much about his work and you leave <laughs> she's like this is dynamite stuff this is definitely why I went to the Royal Shakespeare Academy um, that's definitely a what about one oh dope moment yeah <laughs> well look I think that what you're what you're what you're getting at is I think the it's it's the it's the the trap of of historical dramas it's and I think Narcos is particularly guilty of this where it feels like this enormous fidelity to the historical record but to the to, to such a ridiculous degree where to get all the chess pieces lined up every scene carries the weight of everything so you know entire scenes are like but that was my brother we should go against pablo yeah. today is not the day no today is the day i will do it when like it's all condensed into these one these very dramatic almost soap operatic scenes but what you're getting at to me is the difference. It can be skillfully done. Like you can skillfully thread original drama in and around history, but it's the difference between Mad Men and Boardwalk Empire, you know, where um, the most interesting things about Mad Men was the way the characters were just living their lives while history was occurring all around them. Boardwalk Empire immediately fell into a trap where the most interesting characters on the show were actual characters. I mean, actual historical figures. So there, and, and because of that, they were, essentially robbed of drama like we, we weren't really worried about Al Capone in the first few seasons because we could just look at Wikipedia or an encyclopedia and Nucky Thompson the original character was not interesting enough to carry the weight of the show um right I I, I think you the question that you're getting at is worth talking about as we look at all these new shows and a lot of the period pieces I would almost want to flip it and say why are people scared of the present is it because the bar is so much higher to make them feel essential to or is it because as you're saying in terms of building content libraries because when it works, um, and I think, you know, Mr. Robot, certainly Mr. Robot season one, I still feel cinematically season two, but especially something like Atlanta, Atlanta you know, that we're talking about, we talked about and raved about oh. last week. It's so much more rewarding when you can make a show about right now. And I think people are running scared from that. And, I, and I'm curious why that is. Um, the, I think it's a, it's, it's a real danger if you're making shows set in the past purely because it somehow you feel it makes them makes it more plausible. Like, people know the 70s were important for X, Y, and Z reason, post-Vietnam or, or, you know, the state of the country or gas lines or whatever. Because, the, like, as, you know, the, the, basically the, the, the paperweights 
of importance have already been laid down on your script. And the danger of doing something in the present is you, you don't know what's important. You're clutching at straws and maybe that moment didn't really matter and you end up making the hypercolor of TV shows. I don't know if that's really how the thought process works and I hope it doesn't. Yeah, it's, but... it's weird. It's like, it's because you wonder then why, like, is it that strange, like with Stranger Things so popular with people because it was set in the 80s but not beholden to the 80s? You know what I mean? Like there was no Russian agent. There was no, you know, it like, didn't feel like it was like heavily weighed down with like the inevitability of what we all know actually happened in that decade because it was sort of fantastical, but it was able to use all these cultural uh, signifiers from the decade to, to sort of get people in the South to feel where some other shows might feel like, well, we have to hit these X, Y, Z moments. It's also shorthand. You know, it's all, it's all marketing. It's always, always been all marketing, but it's particularly so now. And you put that font up for Stranger Things, you make that poster, and people immediately have a very deep feeling. They have a, a reaction. You know, it's like a Proustian whatever, that it's like, okay, I know that vibe, I want that vibe, I'm in. Similarly, like, the billboards that are up all around for Quarry, like, you see Logan with his long hair and his mustache, and you're like, okay, I get it, I know what that is. But if you see a billboard where it's just a guy or a woman dressed like the people next to you on the subway or whatever you don't know what the vibe is. You don't know what you're getting into. And maybe you're not even that interested because you're dressed the same way too. So I, I, that's almost definitely part of the reason. But I think you got to they got to do better, man. Can you do the Hollywood fixer? Just like, what What if you did better? What if you tried harder, you know? <laughs> what, if, what if you did less history? Um, okay, well, that sounds like a good, a good place to stop as any. Uh, it's been... It's been magical talking to you. So so strange to be on separate coast. Can, can you do me a favor? I'm a yeah. little concerned I left the oven on in my apartment. Can you just swing by? <laughs> okay, I'll swing by. Yeah. That would be great. Um, can you also go to Bagel Hole on 7th Avenue in Park Slope, get a poppy seed bagel, take a picture of, your, of yourself eating it, and then destroy the picture and never send it to me? I'm actually, I'm going to come back. Uh, I'm going to be the guy on the plane throwing pizza at people on the plane because I'll be bringing you 15 pies from Joe's back. <laughs> That's my man. I love it. All right. <laughs> I'll see you out here soon. Talk to you later, man. Great job, Redski.